Welcome to the Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Our world is complex, but we don't have to stress about this. And if we happen to be feeling a tinge of fear, anxiety, depression, we don't have to suppress this. Hiding our secret angst under an affirmation of simplicity and minimalism? No. Our world is far too messy for that. All those panacea-proclaiming minimalist maximalists will be swept into the dustbin of history in no time. So instead of simple platitudes, we have to strive to come up with new, more critical, and self-reflexive ways of knowing, understanding, and practicing within the systems we are embedded within. It's a hard thing to do. It has a lot less to do with being right and knowing your stuff than it does with a shift in attitude about such things. Accepting the unknown and being humble with it while still experimenting with well-thought-out hunches and hypotheses. And in a nutshell, this is what I think social innovation is all about. But there's more to it than this. So in the next couple of episodes, Professor Dan McCarthy and I dig deeper into the question, what is social innovation? And we explore the new conceptual toolkit of complex systems thinking and how this vernacular can help us navigate a complex, messy world. As you'll hear, these two concepts are central to Dr. McCarthy's and his mentor Francis Wesley's work, as well as others at the Waterloo Institute for Social Innovation and Resilience. So, have a listen to the first part of our conversation in this episode uh, and get a sense of how we explore what we are coming to understand as a better approach to positive social and ecological change and how to become a better agent of change in this incredibly complex and fraught world that we live in. What I like to obviously say right at the get-go is thank you. Um, thank you no for, for being on the, on the Working Together podcast and, uh, and sharing your ideas and your experiences um, with, with us today. Uh, so that's, that's right off the bat, first of all, thanks. And then second of all, um, I kind of start all of my interviews with just a general question about um, you know, how you kind of came to the work that you're doing today, a bit of your personal story, so to speak, around, around the work that you're doing now and, and kind of how you came to it. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear that from you to start sure. us off. 
so <clears throat> where to begin? Uh, I was born and now I'm kidding. Um, uh, now where, where is a logical place? I, I'll, I'll in some ways start in the middle. I'll do the backtracking and then I'll move to where I am now, if that's all right. Uh, Sounds good. I, my first sort of exposure to social innovation as a concept, uh, and I suppose as a practice, really came through Francis Wesley's work and, and in particular the, the book Getting to Maybe. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that's probably sort of the first place I came across the idea or the, you know, the, the, the use of the term social innovation. Um, I'd been familiar with Francis's work uh, related to the concept of social ecological resilience and, and in a lot of ways social innovation as, as Francis talks about it uh, and as we've come to talk about it, is based um, has its sort of theoretical conceptual basis in some of that work uh, around resilience and complexity systems mm. thinking, but also in you know in good social theory. So I came, I, I was familiar with Francis's work going back to chapters that she wrote in in Barriers and Bridges and Panarchy, which are sort of the the standard texts when you're talking about social ecological resilience. And I'd been kind of a fan of uh, of Francis's work for quite a while. I heard that she was bringing um, her work and and uh, sort of the development of an institute in some ways. Um, it wasn't calling it an institute at the time to Waterloo, and so I had finished my PhD and had been doing postdoc work, and my. Uh, PhD was all around um, this idea of social learning, systems change in, in complex socio-ecological systems. And so I felt like I was doing work, you know, similar to what she was was talking about in, in getting to maybe and, and some of the other work that she'd been doing around social innovation. Anyway, um, long and the short of it, I uh, had been applying for academic jobs in my postdoc work. I'd, I'd actually um, had a job offer at a at a at a great university in a in a great department, um, and actually turned and it was a ten year track job. I ended up turning it down hmm. uh, to to um, to apply for uh, this job with Francis here at the University of Waterloo, um, which was you know to some people kind of crazy, but um, I was you know I was pretty committed to to. To, you know the opportunity of working yeah. with her so anyway uh fortune sort of shined upon me and i ended up getting the job so i had turned down this other tenure track job <clears throat> before i even knew i was shortlisted for this job oh wow um Gutsy. yeah i was a little a little bit crazy a little bit crazy um <laughs> my wife is a very patient woman and and you know she's <laughs> supported me through it um, but, um, a lot of other people just thought I was crazy. Uh, but anyway, so I got this job and, and had, had been working with Francis for almost 10 years now, uh, on the, uh, the, the concepts of social innovation, but also the, the practice. Um, and when I say practice, what I'm referring to is, you know, using the ideas and the research that we've been doing on social innovation and it's, uh, sort of the phenomena that, that underlie it, um, for uh, the development of curriculum, mostly for sort of mid-career professionals. And we've developed a few programs um, 
around this concept. And uh, it's been an amazing experience working with Francis and, and other colleagues and then working with the people that, that we work with um, in these uh, um, programs. And they're, they're all the three programs I'm referring to, I can talk about them in, in detail later if you like, but uh, the SIG Diploma Program uh, that we ran for three years here at the University of Waterloo, uh, the Rockefeller Global Fellows Program for the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, which uh, Francis and I and others uh, helped develop, and then we helped run the first year and is now being run through Cape Town University. And then most recently, um, we've run three uh, cohorts of uh, the uh, Getting the Maybe Banff Social Innovation Fellowship or um, residency program out at the BAMP Center. And each of these programs is sort of geared at, towards mid-career professionals that are interested in, in social innovation and systems change. Mm-hmm. And uh, so gotten to work with just some phenomenal people uh, over the years um, in, in those programs. So anyway, um, prior to coming to that, I um, had a sort of an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary kind of uh, <laughs> undergraduate master's and, and PhD that allowed me to explore ideas around uh, complexity, complex systems thinking, um, and, and systems change in, in, in the context of linked socially, uh, social and ecological systems. Um, mm. And uh, my PhD advisor, who unfortunately passed away partway through my, my um, PhD, uh, was a real mentor of mine for, for a very long time before my PhD. He was a physicist, thermodynamicist by the name of James K. And uh, taught me everything I know about complexity. And, and mm. it was mm. it was it was that uh, and some of the experience that I had with community groups uh, and First Nations that I guess um, uh, made Francis think I might be a useful asset. And that's been kind of my role in a lot of the curriculum is uh, trying to teach people how to use systems and, and complexity ideas in, uh, in social change. I think that's probably enough about my story. If you want to know more. Um, I mean, the other things that, that influence me or drive me on a daily basis is <laughs> I have an incredibly patient and supportive wife who throughout <laughs> my years Very as, a, important. as a, as a, Yes, as a graduate student and uh, and academic, uh, she's just always sort of implicitly supported what I do and, and all the travel that I do, and, and uh, um, she's been amazing. And then the other thing that motivates me is I have two uh, daughters that are now in their 20s, um, and one of them is um, here at the University of Waterloo studying sort of environmental studies, environmental science. Um, cool which is gratifying. And the other, her older sister is actually uh, also went through U of W, but now is at uh, University College Dublin in uh, Dublin, Ireland uh, at medical school. So it's kind of exciting. So those are, they, they motivate me. Um, they make me want to uh, think about how to change social, social, social systems for the better, better. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd be, next remiss not to, I'd be remiss not to mention those three people. So, yeah, no, that's totally important, and I'm glad that you did uh, that. You did talk about your family and all of that, and just kind of one follow up question to to your answer there. Um, what what was it about the interdisciplinary work that you were pursuing that engaged you and got you riled up? Like, what led you to university to begin with to to do the work that you were doing? <laughs> that's a good question. Coming out of high school, I had 
I, I did very well in high school. Um, <clears throat> and if I, if you looked at my transcripts, all my math marks were very high and I had some science courses that, that I did pretty well in. Mm-hmm. And then I did well in things like histories and geographies. And I had way more, we had OACs at the time. I had way more OACs than I needed. Um, and, uh, Anyway, I, I had no idea where to go, to be totally honest. I was quite lost, and I ended up applying to pure math here at the University of Waterloo and got in mm. and uh, found out very quickly that that was not what I wanted to do for all kinds of reasons and ended up switching out and looking around campus. I didn't really want to leave UW. It was a good school. Um, and given you know my interest in history and geography, I actually looked at the Faculty of Environment and... Um, I found this odd little interdisciplinary program here. Mm. One of the things that, that pushed me away from math, pure math in particular, was that I only had two electives in my four years. Um, and that sort of scared me because I didn't know that I actually wanted to be, a, I was thinking of being a, going into, um, oh God, what's it called now? Uh, actuarial science, to be an actuary. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I didn't know what I wanted to do, and that seemed like uh, really committing to something that I wasn't really committed to. So mm-hmm. um, looked over here, found this interdisciplinary program um, that would allow me to take, you know, sciences, social sciences, and explore sort of, you know, important environmental issues and uh, with lots of flexibility. And so that's what I did and, and came over here um, and did. I took, you know, everything from... Uh, you know, earth sciences, geology to sort of peace and conflict studies and kind of all points in between. And in about my third year, I took a course by James Kay, um, who ended up becoming my PhD advisor much later on um, complexity and um, uh, how to look at sort of ecological systems through a complexity lens. And it it was one of the first sort of truly transformative learning Mm. uh, experiences I had. And, um, I was hooked into studying complexity and and systems thinking, um, partly because I think it was the way that I saw uh, the world uh, sort of implicitly and and what James uh, and that whole literature and that body of scholarship gave me was a vernacular, a language um, to help me to describe the way that I was seeing the world. So it was, it was really exciting and opened up all kinds of possibilities. Um, you know, <laughs> had to learn all kinds of things from thermodynamic thermodynamics to sort of, you know, sociology, mm. and, um, political science, and, uh, even some economics got into ecological economics. Yeah. So it was, wow. it was a, it was, it was a wild ride. And, and like I say, um, ended up, uh, doing a PhD with James, uh, looking at um, socio-ecological systems as self-organizing, open, holarchic, um, or self-organizing, holarchic, open, or SOHO systems. That was what my dissertation was going to look at. Anyway, um, and unfortunately, he, he passed away. He died of cancer, uh, and uh, I think it was 2003, and uh and anyway um finished my phd eventually and 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 then uh, in my postdoc years ended up uh getting invited to do some uh environmental policy work up on the west coast of james bay and um, that was my first exposure to so to um 
indigenous ways of knowing and being in indigenous communities. And that was another incredibly transformative learning moment. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, uh, I should also acknowledge a bunch of um, uh, indigenous elders, Anishinaabe Cree and Algonquin elders that I've had the privilege of working with. Uh, and even um, some teachers out on, on Haida Gwaii, Haida storytellers. And uh, uh, I've had my mind blown by a number of amazing uh, elders and, and knowledge holders. And again, I, I, I don't want to list them all, but I, I'd be remiss not mentioning them. Mm-hmm. So important for your work. Um, yes. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And so, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, I think probably what we should do right now is unpack some of these key terms that, you know, are, are like... Uh, like water for you in a sense, probably. Right. So like, you know, one being social innovation, uh, and it it tends to be a bit of a buzzword. Right. And I've, I've talked a lot about it on this, on this, uh, on this podcast, but, um, you know, and and some folks define it for me, others, others, we don't kind of go there. It's just implicitly part of the conversation. Um, so that's one term. And then another one is this, uh, is this complex systems thinking, and so, yeah, these two kind of notions I know are central to a lot of the work that you do. Um, and so, how would you define the two? Okay, well, I'm I'm going to totally cop out, and I'm going to use the definition that Francis uh, uses because I think <laughs> That's it's fine. It's fine. I, I really I really like it. Um, so, a social innovation is any product or is an initiative, any initiative, product, process, program, project, platform leaves it wide open. Uh, that challenges and over time contributes to the changing, uh, changing defining routines, resource and authority flows or beliefs of a broader social system in which it is introduced. And successful inst- social innovations have durability, scale and transformative impact. Mm-hmm. And I like that because it, it, it really, in a very thoughtful and, and, and sort of sy- sy- systematic way, lays out what she means by social innovation. And it, and it actually took me a long time to sort of wrap my head around the kind of phenomenon that Francis was was talking about there. And it is a very specific kind of phenomenon that, that she's referring to and that mm-hmm. now I'm referring to when I talk about social innovation. Um, and embedded in that is some of the sort of the theoretical precedents, I suppose, that we use. Like when we talk about routines, resource, and authority flows and beliefs. Those mm-hmm. are three um, sort of social structures that Anthony Giddens defined uh, in his theories of uh, theory of social or of, of uh, structuration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we're, you know, we're trying to use good social theory, but uh, in there, we're also talking about changing systems. And, and that's where it'll get into, I'll talk about complexity and systems thinking. Um and tied to systems as well, when we talk about things having you know durability, scale, and, and transformative impact, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously, these for any social innovation to be successful, any innovation to be successful, it, it has to be durable and it has to last. But then it also has to cross scales, and this is where some of the ideas of complexity come in. Um, and you know, you can you can have a great idea that that doesn't have any sort of purchase, you know, or, or, or traction within a broader system, let alone sort of the, the broader uh, sort of landscape. Um, and so that idea of having, you know, it's the cross scale impact is important. Mm-hmm. And then that, that it transforms uh, the system and, 
And this is, you know, reference to some of the work that's being done in the in the field of resilience uh, around sort of transformation, system transformation versus mm-hmm. sort of uh, ad- adaptation. Um, you know, I can give references associated with that. But the, and then the, so the, the related ideas uh, as well um, around complexity, are something that I've been playing with for a long time. So I remember James and others talking about, you know, complexity theory or others talking about complexity theory or, or complex systems theory. And the, in many ways, there really is no complex systems theory. It's a, it's an interrelated body of theories, mm-hmm. um, you know, that come out of math and chemistry, physics, biology, you know, evolutionary biology, uh, and date back to sort of post-war and, and probably in some ways in, in terms of just holistic thinking date back to the Greeks. But, um, you know, I, so the, the, you know, the, the formal theories are things like nonlinear thermodynamics and self various theories of self-organization, catastrophe mm-hmm. theory, chaos theory, you know, those, those theories that sort of underlie some of the, the complex dynamics that, that we see, um, or that can be useful tools in understanding, uh, systems that we define as, as complex. Um, so there's that, the formal theory kind of that, that informs this. And then there's, uh, even, even in my dissertation and other people have made this distinction around sort of complex systems thinking, which is a mode of reasoning, reasoning, which uses insights from these formal theories, um, to talk about the fact that, you know, it's useful to think about complex systems as holistic, right? That they, they, they are more than the sum of their parts effectively, uh, that it's useful to sort of stand back from a system as opposed to just constantly breaking it down into smaller pieces, sort of reductionism Mm -hmm. to to stand back and say, you know, that this thing um, might be usefully thought of as an interconnected whole. And what are we missing if we're, if we're, if we're not doing that? So, I mean, you know, just looking at things, looking Mm -hmm. for connections um, is, is always a a useful thing uh, to do from a sort of a systems and complexity point of view. Then there's, you know, complex dynamics, um, which are sometimes can, can seem, you know, counter uh, intuitive, um, even ideas around self-organization, um, the, the idea that you can have, uh, you know, a system that um, <clears throat> exhibits emergent properties, right? The, uh, the really simple example of a tornado or sorry, a little vortex in your bathtub that emerges mm-hmm. to dissipate an energy gradient. I mean, that's an emergent uh uh, an emergent property of that fairly simple system um, dissipates that energy gradient much more quickly than it would if it was just gurgling, um, and uh, those can th- those those kinds of dynamics are, um, you know, they they can be sort of counterintuitive, um, but they're they're also um, they're not amenable to sort of a lot of the sort of ways of thinking that we that we have access to. So mm. people. Like um, Gerald Weinberg, who was a, a you know sort of one of the fathers or grandfathers of systems thinking, talked about the you know distinctions between sort of mechanistic um, and reductionist sort of Newtonian approaches to to various phenomena, um, and using the kind of clock metaphor, um, uh, you know, taking a, a clock apart and understanding the the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, or you know thinking about sort of you know Newtonian dynamics of pool balls on a table, mm-hmm. um, 
obviously lots of insights that we've gleaned from that sort of, you know, those kinds of ideas. At the other sort of end of the spectrum where, you know, he, he has it on a little two-axis kind of uh, conceptual map, um, you know, at the other end of the spectrum where you have sort of high randomness and high complexity, um, uh, you have sort of the, the, the whole sort of realm of um, statistical analysis, right, where uh, you can talk about aggregate properties, sort of less useful to talk about the molecules in this room as pool balls on a table, more useful to talk about their aggregate properties, right, mm-hmm. like temperature and pressure, and you can use statistical analysis for that. What Weinberg and others argued is there's a whole realm of phenomena in the middle There's sort of too organized for statistics um, and uh, and too complex for sort of Newtonian um, dynamics, and and this is that sort of middle middle number problem realm of uh, of complexity, and that's where some of these theories that I, I mentioned earlier have emerged, and uh, you have some ideas about how to tackle that kind of phenomena, and uh, you have you know dynamics like feedback loops, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned earlier, various forms of self organization or emergence. Um, ideas of like bifurcations and attractors uh, that can be really useful heuristics in understanding problems that are that are usefully thought of as as complex uh, and that don't necessarily come out of you know other other ways of knowing uh, so um, that's you know that's is is one way of sort of getting mm-hmm. you know a handle on, on yeah. some of, of these ideas around systems. The the other thing that I that tend to emphasize when I talk about complexity in systems though is uh is this idea and the importance of perspectives. Um right. And, yes, I remember and, you talking about this at a yeah, at a presentation. Yeah. Uh, I uh I I find that that I think it's um, not something that is discussed enough when people are talking about complexity or, or systems thinking. And it's really something that, that James, even as a physicist, emphasized all the time. Um, and Mario Pietro, who's an ecological economist and systems thinker, has a wonderful little piece in, his, in, in one of his books um, where he, he you know, gives the reader a thought experiment uh, and says, you know, okay, you, you're tasked with the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, you're given the task of picking up Dr. X from the airport, but you're not given a, um, any kind of indication of who Dr. X is. Um, and uh, so obviously you request a picture of Dr. X and, um, and the, the sort of smart aleck who's on the other end of this email conversation, I'm assuming, sends you a, a picture of um, a small portion of Dr. X's duodenum um, taken in an experimental nutrition lab. Um, <laughs> Now, in, again, incredibly useful information that can be gleaned from this this image uh, about how Dr. X processes nutrients, but absolutely useless for the task at hand, right? So then, uh, you know, you write back and say, I'd like a larger scale picture of Dr. X, please. And so you're given a picture of Dr. X in a large crowd. Um, you know, completely impossible to see who Dr. X is. Uh, but you are given some, again, useful information about Dr. X. It, uh, that you can derive from this image. It's uh, of Dr. X at a, an Italian Green Party rally. So you can likely deduce that our Dr. X is Italian and perhaps sort of left-leaning and, and or green in his or her political you know, propensities. Uh, possibly a neocon there to disrupt things. I'm not sure. But anyway, useful information, absolutely useless for the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, you're, you ask for a picture of Dr. X of just the head and nothing but the head, and you're given an X-ray of Dr. X. <laughs> Um, 
if you happen to have the right expertise, you can, you know, deduce that Dr. X is likely a female based on the bone structure and that apparently Dr. X has a uh, blocked sinus. Uh, again, incredibly useful information, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but useless for the task at hand. So Mario, you know, says we'd like visible light rays, please, to to uh, get rid of the other, what he calls non-equivalent representations of this, you know, complex system. And, and you end up with a picture of Dr. X. Anyway. Uh, you know the the point there is that perspective is incredibly important, um, and and there's other work by Dan Simon, for instance, on tension blindness. Dan Simon is a a social psychologist, and he talks. He uses those those uh, videos that I'm sure you've seen online of uh, people passing a basketball and a mm-hmm. gorilla walk a gentleman in a gorilla walking gorilla suit walking through, um, and it, these are these are really good you know ways of understanding the fact that. There, the world is an incredibly complex place, and inevitably, what we do is we pull phenomena into the foreground and leaves all kinds of phenomena in the background. We sometimes forget that we are doing this. We do this. Uh, our brain does this for us, actually, all the time, uh, using our senses. But we then also do this on a cognitive level um, by using various theories and ideas. And sometimes we're aware that we do this and sometimes we're not. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the biggest things I've been, that, that I've been taught through um, under, trying to understand complexity is that there is not just complexity out there, but there is also complexity in the way that we try to understand the world. Mm-hmm. And then the way, unfortunately, the way that we try to communicate it between each other. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very difficult to talk about a truly objective, you know, view of the world. Obviously science has done a a wonderful job of, you know, trying to remove, you know, fact and value and it goes way back and there's real value in that. And we're seeing the value of that looking south of the border to some of the dynamics there and some of the anti-science discourse is quite scary, Mm -hmm. but there are really, you know, very different ways of viewing the world. And I think it's important to understand that. And, and what one of the things complexity does is to, to help people to uh, make those kinds of boundary distinctions quite explicit and to then make assumptions that you're, that you're making on a regular basis uh, explicit. So, you know, all, like all of this, uh, all of this is incredibly insightful stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm going to tie this back, this question back slightly to something you mentioned uh, uh, as a response to the first question there, which is that you and Francis are developing curriculum and materials and things like this for um, professionals, working professionals, folks who are kind of mid-career. You know, I think in large part trying to seed ideas of um, social innovation and social entrepreneurship and whatnot into existing institutions and organizations, I'm imagining. Um, but so in all of this, like what, what does this mean to a practitioner? You know, them kind of seeing this complex uh, system dynamic um, perspective on the world mm-hmm. and them kind of understanding their role as somebody who can kind of... Uh, you know, either try to implement a social innovation or experiment with a social innovation of some sort. Like what, you know, what does this mean to the practitioner? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's been one of the biggest challenges and the the challenge that I have um, 
it's it's one of those those problems, those challenges that you that you I suppose love to hate almost. It's it's mm-hmm. been the, the the you know the the driving force behind a lot of my work. I am not a uh, a theoretician. I am not a theory builder. I'm uh, I consider myself a, a mentor of mine and, and really a mentor of, of Francis as George Francis talks about uh, a lot of this kind of transdisciplinary work as. Uh, as people being theory consumers, you bring together ideas and try to make them useful mm-hmm. in different kinds of problem contexts. And that has been my challenge over the last 10 years, especially working with Francis on this curriculum and working with all these amazing people that have gone through these various programs is how do you make these ideas of complexity and systems thinking useful to someone who is a change agent? That's it for part one of my interview with Dr. Dan McCarthy, where we explore this concept of social innovation and a whole bunch of other interesting ideas. Um, So stay tuned for part two. Uh, I'll be putting that out soon, and you can have a listen and find out how you put this stuff into practice, according to Dan and myself as well. I'll have some thoughts on that. So... Stay tuned, everybody, and stay golden, Pony Boy. Uh, I don't know why I threw that in there, but I, I did because I just am a geek for the outsiders, apparently. Okay, love you guys. Bye. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com/slash/theworkingtogetherpodcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. 